Welcome to the Qual Lighthouse, the podcast of the Advanced Qualitative Methods Pathway at the White Rose Doctoral Training Partnership, bringing together the Universities of Bradford, Hull, Leeds, Manchester Metropolitan, Sheffield Hallam, Sheffield and York to deliver cutting-edge qualitative methods training to postgraduate researchers. This podcast is directed by our director, Dr Anna Manzano from the University of Leeds. This is meant as a space and time for laughing, sharing and feeling less lonely and less imperfect or guilty during the doctoral journey. We're trying to reclaim a more real pathway from doctoral to postdoctoral research. And in here, we will chat with academics about their writing and publication journeys after their PhD. Because a problem shared is a problem halved. Welcome to our lighthouse. Listen to the waves, enjoy your stay, and relax. Hi, Kirsty. Hi. Uh, welcome. <laughs> welcome. Thank you very much for being with us in the Quad Lighthouse podcast. Thank you for being here. Um, you are connecting from a cafe today. <laughs> I am sorry if there's a little noise. So that no, that's why that makes our podcast more real. Okay. I'm going to start by introducing you to our listener. Dr. Kirsty Finn is a reader in learning and teaching at Manchester Metropolitan University. She's a sociologist of higher education. Her research explores the experiences of peer shared living, friendships and other intimacies combining living at home with university and the wider relationship between universities, students and local communities. Her most recent work explores the generational impact of the massification and marketization of higher education. From her long list of publications, we would like to highlight her book published in 2015, Personal Life, Young Women and Higher Education, a relational approach to students and graduate experiences and her latest writings on the millennials published in 2021, Student Millennials, Millennial Students, How the Lens of Generation Constructs Understanding of the Contemporary Higher Education Students. today we're going to talk about the process of writing your first paper published on your PhD but also because of your area of interest we're going to talk a lot about getting to uni, who gets to uni, why they get there, the transitions and things like that and you know what, what yeah. happens when you're, you're first generation as well. Yeah. So we're going to talk about your first, I think it's your first qualitative paper from your PhD. Yeah quite yeah. interesting going back to this actually and reading it so it's, yeah. a, lot, it's, it's a lot better written and, and tighter than some of our more recent ones yeah. <laughs> yeah well I was going to ask you about that about how, how did it feel to think that you had to talk about paper. let me just tell the, the audience a paper it's called young free and single question mark theorizing partner relationships during the first year of university and you published this in 2013 yeah uh, so what do you think now when you had to read it again yeah, I was I was fairly impressed actually at, at how you know the particularly the abstract and the introduction are very clear in you know there's not a lot of flab in there which I'm quite bad at writing. You know, I'm quite, you know and I, I was obviously I remember doing it, um, and I was obviously 
writing. I, I'd, I'd read a lot about how to write good introductions and how to write good abstracts and how to pinpoint your contribution and your specific intervention and how to, I'd even done analysis of other articles that I like to consider, you know, what is in this paragraph and how you know how many sentences are in a paragraph I was quite I wrote in a, in a very methodical way back then yeah. because I was very anxious and I think yes. I write in a much freer way now although I don't know that I have more success <laughs> um, but yeah I was quite um, I was struck by how methodical some of the writing was you know this is where I'm coming in this is how it's building another literature this is the contribution I, I think because I'm writing something at the minute and I think I could learn a lot from reading that go. paper again <laughs> That's good because when I first emailed you and I said, oh, you, you know, maybe we can talk about this one. It looked to me that you would have been worried, as I would be a bit worried of having to read that. Early. Yeah. Yeah. You think it's going to be quite traumatic going back and reading something that actually was, you know, three years, it's 2013. Um, I got my PhD in 2010. Yeah. And I know, like, I think, I think eventually, I think it might have been accepted in 2012. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, it's like three years in the making, isn't it? And, and yeah. longer than that, because obviously the PhD is a, a, you know, much, much longer project. Sorry, we've yeah. got crying babies. Well, there's something quite, there's something quite circular, actually, and quite neat about doing this in a cafe, because I wrote so much of my PhD in a cafe. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like... Um, too strange I suppose yeah yeah no exactly many many of us use cafes if it's not as a as a constant place of writing and sometimes as you know occasional places of writing when you're stuck and you can't you know there's no way you can sit in your desk anymore and sometimes I think like the silence or the you know the stillness of a room can be quite overwhelming whereas I quite like to sort of um, disappear into the background of a busy space sometimes for my yeah. thinking yeah, exactly definitely. so that's good then so we you kind of live in your experience of writing through this, through this yeah. interview yeah listen I um I've asked you to think of a song that can represent this paper can you tell us which one you've chosen and why yeah I I'm, I've chosen a song by everything but the girl um mm. kind of a bit of a dance duo um the song is called wrong yeah um and there's kind of multiple uh reasons for it it, it reminds me of my university transition it was a song that I loved when I went to university in Newcastle when I was younger yeah. but also I kind of revisited the album when I was um uh when I got my first job as a lecturer at the University of Teesside and um mm. and then I was writing this paper and it, it just it just reminds yeah there's just lots of different layers to it and I think some of the lyrics are quite pertinent um yeah it just takes me back to a time really um where, yes. when when I realized I was I was really starting out on my academic career right should we listen to it I don't know if um, if you had the opportunity to listen to any of our podcasts, but we we try to imagine that in this lighthouse, <laughs> and I, I do take you up through. If you can imagine that it's a spiral staircase, and you know we go up the different rooms. Yeah. Um, so as we as we start walking. Uh, there is this room called the control room and this is where everything you know where, where the lighthouse has kind of the engine and how the light system operates and uh, well, I like this as a metaphor of all the things that you cannot see 
um, um, when you when you read the paper that's been published, you know, all the work, all those two years that you said <laughs> that passed, all the all the drafts, all the proofreading, all the conversations with other people. So if we don't mind, we're going to start talking about those things. But before we do that, do you mind remind our audience and those that haven't had time to read it what this paper is all about and more or less kind of very briefly if you can your key findings yeah um so the paper um was actually one of it was a strand of, of uh, analysis that i didn't publish in the it, there wasn't a, a home for it in the thesis so when i was starting to write after i'd finished obviously it's very arduous you work on that thesis for a long time and you can get too close to some, of, some aspects of it and you know quite traumatized by that um and the advice was to publish something that felt fresh and felt um uh, you know something that I could engage with in a more kind of positive because <laughs> I'd, I'd had some corrections as well so um, this was a, you know visiting a, a bit of data that was that was um, perhaps as not as theorized as the other sections of data it was some arguments that I hadn't sort of seen the light of day before in this particular way so the arguments were around um, the because the women I interviewed were, were women going to university from a town in, in the north of England. Yeah. And they were largely, well, but not all, first-generation entrants and from what we might call working-class backgrounds or from minority ethnic backgrounds or, or a combination of the two, but not necessarily. And um, the, the thesis and the paper is, is sort of uh, responding to a shift in debates about educational choice that had tried to or started to incorporate students' wider lives, so not just their qualifications or their uh, decisions around in, in a sort of rational financial, uh, you know, I, I want to go here because it makes sense financially or I want to go here because I've got the grades. But a, a body of literature that had started to think about how um, friendship and family feature in educational choice. So Rachel Brooks had done a lot of work on that in particular, and some mm -hmm. others, particularly around where, where students had more complex lives, for example, if they were parents or if they were mature students. And I kind of felt that it's not just mature students who have commitments, you know, and have yeah. relationships. And I sort of wanted to flesh out the the colour in, in young students who are quite often seen as either the product of parents you know they are yeah. the uh, the result of various strategies of social mobility or whatever or, or not sorry about that and um or uh, or, or or you know even the stuff around friendship was a little bit um it was about strategies rather than feelings and yeah. i think my one my work to make an intervention to say you know young people have feelings too and yeah. they're part of all these complex webs of relationships that other people are part yeah. of and, and just to kind of like i say flesh out color in uh, some of the uh, the pictures we had of young people in yeah. higher education studies, which were largely um, black and white, in my yeah. view, at, at that time anyway. So mm -hmm. this paper was about their relationships with partners. Um, mm -hmm. Most of them um, identified as uh, heterosexual, though not all. And, and, and there was a journey um, for one uh, participant that, that I knew of throughout the study, which is captured in a chapter elsewhere. Um, but it was basically about their boyfriends or, or lack of, or, uh, you know, and so, so reading the paper, it was a little bit heteronormative and I thought, oh, crikey, I should have had a bit more of a reflection on that. Um, uh, yeah. But that's, that's the time. That that's the time, something. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and certainly something mm. that I would reflect on much more now. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was about how they, but not, not just whether or not they were in relationships, but how those narratives opened up possibilities for selfhood um, yeah. and particularly around authenticity and um, belonging within the, the community of students. Yeah. 
I love the paper and I think obviously you know it's very difficult when you read a paper like this don't think about yourself in my case for example also being first generation and I, it got me thinking that I actually left my boyfriend before going to uni. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> and and uh, I left my working class boyfriend. Eh? Yeah, I, it was almost like I just wonder what it was like okay let's see where I can find something better. <laughs> Yeah, and I think yeah, yeah I yeah. think there's something in in nice. the sense of you don't want to go into this experience that you're doing yeah. for the first time in your family, you know, yeah. with any kind of anchorage or with anything yeah. holding you back from all these possibilities that await you. Exactly. And that was definitely something that came through, but it wasn't necessarily felt evenly or equally across the, yeah. the, the participants. Some of them were welcoming that shift, and yeah. others were very anxious about what that meant because for them, their partners. Yeah albeit you know a, a maybe a 12-month relationship with somebody they met at yeah. college or sixth form or a longer-term relationship yeah. they were their best friends you know and they yeah. didn't have a space in which to articulate that connection yeah. yeah but also how is uh you know the prospect of starting university for a working class uh, person is also this idea of kind of you know reimagining yourself as somebody that is yeah, it's, different it's it's letting yeah. go isn't it it's yeah, a lot of letting let go. go yeah and um yeah I think yeah. that's what came through with the data that <laughs> yeah. it was this kind of need to let go of all things yeah. it's quite traumatic for young working class yeah. uh, men and women because you don't reflect on those things as being a pattern you just see them as being individual as something that you do so what is nice is when you read these papers and see actually you know this is this is more than me this is mm. you know why yeah. we do all these things because of all the you know i think that's why <laughs> so, i tried to yeah. talk about the moral tale and, yeah. and make it more of like these are these are material things you know people yeah. are moving away from partners but also it, it's at that level of the discursive where it's what what um you know what discourses are available to young people yeah. or and, and I don't know I think I, I hope and I think things might have moved on a little bit in the you know I did my research in 2006 yeah um so it's a long time ago <laughs> now yeah. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and I'm not even going to say when did I start uni <laughs> <was even> longer. <laughs> Listen, I think young people tend to be slightly more open-minded well yeah, I don't know big generalization there I think they are I bet they are listen um I, I normally like to look at the acknowledgement section in papers so you don't have one I know paper. I felt I didn't even realize I think I was so busy trying to be published I forgot to thank all the people who helped me so thanks for reminding me of that I felt so, incredibly guilty no I do I should I should have had yeah so who who would you acknowledge now that you, that you I would can... acknowledge Carol Smart definitely and mm -hmm. um, Professor Carol Smart who retired um Oh, and she your, was she your supervisor? She was my PhD supervisor, yeah, and, and she actually worked with me <laughs> um, beyond, you know, to really work on this paper. So I feel terrible. I just hadn't really, I had, hadn't given it a lot of thought. And I think that's a little bit of my naivety working class, but I hadn't really, I didn't know the rules of the game, really. Yeah. Um, and perhaps I should have done, and perhaps I made a bit of an error there, who knows. But oh, definitely no. Carol, she really, <laughs> when I talk about that methodical approach that I took, she was... Um, you know, she was kind of central to me doing that, to looking at other papers and finding out when, when I went to her and said, you know, I need I need to be published, not just want to be, but I need to be, as we all yeah, feel that yeah. need. You know, I was in a new job and there were stresses and things. And she yeah. said, well, show me some papers you like. What? Why, why do they communicate effectively with you? What is it about them? 
and we oh, sat in her garden in Leeds and yeah. we discussed them and yeah she gave me a lot of her personal time I think yeah so it's absolutely yeah. outrageous I didn't thank her it's quite nice uh Cassie that you're telling me the story because you almost need like the movie of the of the of the making of you know the making of, of the of this paper I want to see you in the garden <laughs> with, yeah. with, with all these other papers that you like I, lo- I love that technique you know which ones do you like and why and can you can you do the same so it's, it's at least you you're thanking her now in this way which is yeah and she taught me even at that stage even at the end of a PhD with it with it with a confirmed Mm. PhD I still hadn't Mm. really thought about what it was about the structure of an article that made you know I hadn't hadn't analyzed articles in that way and perhaps that's my failing I just knew that what was I kind of got a sense of it but I made myself or she made me be yeah really explicit about what sections worked and what didn't and 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 it helps and then you go on and obviously you you do reviews and things like that yourself and and you, you get very good at seeing that so you got you got this paper published in the British Journal of Sociology of Education. Was that your first journal, or did you remember? Do you remember if you tried any others before? It was my first, um, and I got an R and R, and I got some very good comments. And right. I'd worked very very hard on it. I mean, it was it was fairly polished, and I had a lot of like I say uh, support when it went in. I, I think I got minor corrections. Um, right. minor correction sorry minor revisions I'm in PhD mode yeah um, and um, so I mean yeah. since then I've had some way more traumatic it was a really nice experience with the journal oh, and they were very yeah I think because it was something that really was wasn't being talked about I think that really helped as well well you were quite fortunate that clearly not fortunate because you had to work very hard but I think when your first experience of sending it to a journal is not so positive then it can totally uh, destroy a bit of their self-esteem <laughs> so the fact that you did have a good round of comments that I remember being so. quite devastated by some of the comments but I mean I wish I still had them <laughs> and I wish I'd kept them but I think looking back they weren't they were nothing like things I've had since that have told me that my ideas are not worth you know I've had some terrible reviews since then but yeah as a a first experience it was definitely one of the best ones do you you remember do you remember any of the comments or it's too long ago and you can't remember um I think they were basically about the fact that it was very it was theoretically informed um and I and I had I think the thing is when you're doing qualitative research um you get you get quite oh you know there was, a, there was certainly a culture within some of the postgraduate groups that mm-hmm. I worked within, you know, the, when you do the kind of formally SRC training, that what we yeah. were doing was not proper sociology or it was not certainly the hard things that other people yeah. were doing. And I think mm-hmm. I had a lot of anxieties around that. And so I yeah. really ensured that it had this very strong, theoretical narrative throughout mm. and and th- and I got comments that, that sort of said that I did well to do you know I, I made it more than just you know look at these nice experiences and shouldn't we listen to them I, I did I did work very hard to theorize them and link them to other patterns around relationships and, and gender I think when you've got something like a qualitative yeah longitudinal projects and I mean I'm, I'm sort of veering off to other articles but I've, I've often looked at cases 
because yeah. in that paper I talk about Emily and I show the change in Emily's position from her saying you know I'd never have a boyfriend and then very quickly she has a boyfriend <laughs> and, it, and, and those change in position are very interesting um, yeah. you know in terms of what kinds of narrative devices are used to justify changes in position and, and changing values and things like that but you don't have the yeah. space in a, in a journal article to look no. at change you know and change and then still talk about patterns so I yeah. found it really difficult publishing for my PhD because you know, I'd almost shot myself in the foot by having this qualitative <laughs> longitudinal project that had all these all these different ways of cutting up the data and so yeah. I wrote a lot about case in other articles and I did think about picking one of those where I, I use cases you know a particular mm-hmm. um a particular respondent and then come out from that and in my 2015 book I actually start each chapter with a uh, a brief synopsis of uh, a participant and use that as a lens through which to draw out the themes of the chapter and it, it's really hard <laughs> that, that was going to be one of my questions later on is like when you do a qualitative longitudinal yeah. <laughs> how many you work it out to, to present all that richness my advice is just time. don't do it <laughs> no it, it's it's annoying because it doesn't lend itself particularly to short form articles that have to have all these other bits and pieces in them and you know sometimes you would get feedback I would get feedback they would say you know there's nothing on this there's nothing on this and you're thinking, yeah, well yeah. you know I'm trying to do a lot here with like 5,000 words so yeah yeah so if we go back to the title yeah. You know, you've got a title um, that has like a question mark, which is quite, quite interesting. You know, sorry, I'm going back to young, free and single question yeah. mark. Which is quite, quite nice. How do you, how do you decide on the title? Was it like straight away you knew what you're going to call it or did you go through different versions? Or did... I think again, it was something that was worked out with Carol Smart and mm-hmm. um, we, I think obviously young, free and single is a, it's a saying. So it's something that people can connect with. Um, but I think there was also um, a kind of strategic uh, keyword search thing there. And so I wanted your yeah. single. Oh, okay. and, and, you know, so there were, <laughs> there were some elements of strategy in there. With, And it, I think it's quite an, an adventurous title, personally. I think it just says what it does. Um, but yeah, there was, but obviously I wanted, and then when I found out, I think later that there was actually another article called Young Free and Singles, I was pretty devastated. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, in the, in the paper, you um, interviewed 24 young women, undergraduates, over a period of 14 months. You, how many times did you interview them? Is it three times. Three uh, times well, each. Three, there were three rounds of interviews, not all. Um, were available for all yeah, three. I, imagine, uh, yeah. I think I think it was kind of like nineteen or twenty took part in the, in the full round. Of yeah. Interviews. Listen, um, you've um, you mentioned in the, at the beginning that you were first generation of women and I mm. going to uni. When I was reading the paper, I didn't know whether you were first generation, so I kept asking myself that question, and I can I can imagine that in your thesis you have the kind of reflexivity section where you have to talk about your own background and everything being qualitative data but then we get we get to the to the journal and you can't do that because you haven't got space yeah how how, how is it hard was that for you in the context of not kind of not, not being able yourself. to include yeah yeah not, to, not 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 talking about yourself but you know saying this is coming from that perspective um, it wasn't difficult at all, really. I mean, I did, in, I do include um, a section in the 2015 book, which talks, yes. which positions me. It's like a prelude to the whole book, and it talks about my own 
day of arrival on campus and I do, yeah. I do talk about that much more in the book because you have the space and you can articulate yeah. it in the ways you want to I think uh, sometimes feel like reflexivity is done in I, I think yeah so going back to the comment I made earlier yeah. around the heteronormative I think now I would have a much more a stronger reflexive statement around that and my own position uh, definitely um, than, I, than I had in that article but also I don't know I think I think reflexivity is obviously really important in qualitative research yeah. but I also think that it's very I, the, the, you know there were participants for whom we got we had very different experiences to me and yeah. I didn't really see that inserting my I mean my, my yeah I suppose yeah there's a lot there was a lot of that in the I suppose I'm thinking about it quite <laughs> quite critically now um I definitely reflected on it a lot in the PhD but it didn't in, in article writing, I think it's it's less and less. Even even method sections get shorter and shorter and, and have yeah. less and less in them, just in terms of you know the bare bones of how many was in was in the sample. And, and it's quite interesting when you are reviewing and you read, you can tell it's an early career researcher and the method sections are very long. <laughs> and, 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 and there's a good reason for that because that's what the PhD is. It's a methodological training and these things are absolutely vital. Um, mm. But they do kind of get in shout, don't they, within the... Yeah. Um, within the constraints of a, of a short form article. Um, but yeah, I suppose, I suppose over the years, I think reflexivity was very important to me when I was doing the PhD and when I was doing the research. And as I moved out of that, I think because you have been, you know, you, you, you've taken a very theoretical stance on it. You've, you, you have reflected on your own position. You have understood your own positionality in the research. I, I don't know that I was too upset by that by the time I got to this article yeah I think I felt like I'd done the work if that makes sense yeah, yeah. so you 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 said that this paper was like a kind of a spin-off from the thesis like you didn't you didn't have you didn't have this content in the thesis is this mm. correct did I understand correctly yeah it didn't a, make it I had a section yeah. on family and friends but nothing it, it just yeah. there was because there was I had a whole chapter on home as well which was big and I just had it was so it was just a huge it was a huge yeah. it's way too big for a phd basically it had about 80 qualitative interviews in it yeah. so did you though use some of the content from, from this paper in the book um, uh yeah but the, it's also there was another chapter that i wrote for uh, mm -hmm. an edited collection around sexualities yeah. and so i must have been doing some of that reflex you know that reflexivity work <laughs> yeah. at the time because i um, talked about um just some of the assumptions around heteronormativity and and and, and also around like ladism which was quite a big issue at the time yeah. as well and um so the chapter on in the book oh God, i have to remind myself i can never remember but it, it's more around um i think i think the chapter is peer shared living sexuality and intimacy and it kind of does a few different things um so it's it's, it's a version of this and i was quite careful not just to reproduce an article for the, for the book as well yeah is is one of the is one of the key worries from our PGRs, you know, it's like how you, how how much of what you publish in a paper then you can put in the in the book. And so this kind of constant worry. And I suppose the message is don't worry, it gets rewritten twenty million times and then it doesn't look I mean ultimately a paper gets distilled down to one idea, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. One, and so I think the chap I think it became a, a, like a strand within the chapter um, yeah, yeah. and there were other strands in there so yeah I, I, it's 
yeah, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got another, another the last question about the paper, and it's about this comparative process that you do between your participants, between your 24, where you were trying to, sometimes you have to use numbers, and you should say four of these women were doing that, and five of that, which is always really hard to do as qualitative yeah, researcher, but then you, you start seeing these patterns of being, you know, I, I need to talk about this. One, one of the things, for example, that I saw is when you put that four of the young women were living at home and those four were from South Asian origin. <laughs> and then you try, you know, understand that. Um, I know from my own experience how hard it is to present this comparison data of numbers. Um, any advice you can? <laughs> no, I, I think it comes back to your question about reflexivity. And so yeah. I think a version of this paper, if I remember correctly, just didn't have them in it. And then mm -hmm. you start to reflect and think, why am I not? But because they didn't really talk about it and it wasn't, yeah. some of these themes just didn't come up in their interviews. Other themes did, but this wasn't. And I think I did talk about it to Carol and to others who I was in conversation with. And, mm -hmm. you know, and you do have to say, well, it's... It, <laughs> Am I just thinking this wasn't important to them because I, you know, because of my positionality and, and, and the silences? And instead, I decided to to maybe theorise those silences a little bit more and think about how silence um, was sh shared, albeit in different ways, by the women who had uh, relationships. You know, and thinking about how, and, and that's how I got to the sort of narrative conventions rather than just right. the, you know, the materiality of had boyfriends, didn't have boyfriends, yeah. whatever, um, and. Um, yeah, it is difficult because you, especially when you're dealing with a small number and, yeah. and their, their experiences were really relevant and there was lots of there was lots of ways in which it, they need to be captured as part of it. it I, I just felt uncomfortable not including them in this paper. And yeah, mm -hmm. but I don't know that I understand exactly how to get over the yeah, this need that we feel as qualitative researchers to suddenly quantify something yeah. when we're not really dealing with that. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's just um, old habits and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so we're going to move into the next uh, part of the, of the lighthouse and it's, it's the lantern room. And okay. this is where we keep walking together. This is at the top. And this is where the lens stands, and it's where the, the light gets projected, you know, the beacon yeah. into the windows, quite nice. And this represents some short questions I want to ask you, okay? okay. <laughs> and I would like you to reply to those questions with one or two words. What's your favourite place to write? Cafes. Could choose one academic, dead or alive, to be your next door neighbour, who would they be? Uh, Doreen Massey. What is the word you use way too often in your academic writing? Particularly. What's your favourite time of day to write? Morning. Desert Island disc situation, will you choose an endless supply of pen and paper or an endless supply of champagne? Champagne. What's your highest number of journals tried for the same paper? Uh, two. That's not bad. <laughs> One academic talent you wished you had. Resilience. Typical reaction to a paper rejection. Anger. 
celebration rituals for your paper acceptance or book published? Uh, meet with friends. What published academic paper would you like to have a cameo in? Um, yeah, there's a paper by... Um, Oh, I see. This is where I'm terrible because I forget names. But she was at Manchester doing a PhD with me. I'm terrible at names. But it's called Snowden, and I do really like it. And it's by... Oh, I'm sorry. This is really terrible because she's a really nice person and someone that I would know if I saw her. But I'm on the spot. Julie. Is it Julie? Uh, I can't remember. Um, but, yeah, it's called Snowden. It's in sociology. And I just really like it. And it's about the sort of temporality of being snowed in. And I just, it's a paper that I really enjoyed reading. What advice would you give to your younger academic self now? Uh, become a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> No, they seem to make an awful lot of money. Uh, no, um, no, I think it would be just be patient. It, just be patient. It's not as the time pressure that you feel. It, it's not as pressured as you think. Right. Okay. Patience then. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kirsty. We have we we're about to 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 finish, but we you know have just a few more questions and a game. You know, we like to do a game in here. So as we get out into the gallery, you can, you're now actually physically outside and you, you, you can see the sea and you can hear it with the, with the waves. <laughs> you can smell the, the, the sea salt, you can feel the sea breeze. So this paper, as I've mentioned in the past about, you know, the, the background, if, if the story, the untold story of the paper, it probably starts with, with you in the garden, with uh, with your supervisor, but if we were going to to do a movie about the paper, <laughs> um, what what will the first scene of that movie be? Do you think? Oh, I think if it's like a coming of age kind of genre film, you know, mm. like the kind where you you know it's that whole like leaving high school or you know this is the thing you tend to go to like Americanized tropes, don't you, when you start <laughs> movies? But yeah, that kind of wistful end of term, everyone's going their own way. First scenes like maybe people splintering off, and you kind of don't really know what's ahead. You know, it's full of possibilities, yeah. but it's also a bit of bit of pathos as well. Nice, nice. I like it. <laughs> Listen, let's move into the game, okay? It's this game that we have. It's called Who Said It? Yeah, this is making me nervous. <laughs> I know. That's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> More nervous than article rejections. Yeah, and actually, we kind of like it if you get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, I got three quotes, and okay. they're either from an academic or a celebrity, and you have to guess, right? Do I have to guess whether it's either or, or do I have to pick the actual person that it's from? Yeah, you, you have to you have to guess who said it. Okay. So you have to pick one name. Are you ready for the first one? Okay. <laughs> the accumulation of cultural capital, the acquisition of knowledge, is the key to social mobility. French philosopher Pierre Bourdieu or British politician Michael Gove. Oh God, I hope it's not her. <laughs> <laughs> I would say Bourdieu. Sorry, what did you say? I would say Pierre Bourdieu. Kirsty? Oh no. <laughs> it's Michael Cobb. Oh Christ. <laughs> well, that's how British politics works. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> right, okay. Don't worry, let's try the second one. 
I just want to go to university and have fun. I want to be an ordinary student. I'm only going to university. It's not like I'm getting married, though that's what it feels like sometimes. English writer Virginia Woolf or Prince William? Oh, I'd say Virginia Woolf. Prince William! Gosh, I'm doing terrible. Can't imagine, I just can't imagine Prince William saying anything beyond the sort of scripted niceties, to be honest. There you go. He did. Right, let's see whether you're, you're better at the last one, okay? From the feelings of longing to fit in, to connect, to belong, to embarrassment, guilt and intense self-awareness, the transition to university can bring a range of emotions and contradictory feelings of disconnection. Emma Watson, English actress, or Kirsty Finn, sociologist of higher education? Yeah, I have no idea. Did I write that? I can't remember. You want me to repeat it? No, don't put me through it. Was is that mine? Yeah. Yes, say mine. Yay! Yes. Oh well, at least I know my own writing, if not anybody else's. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much for being part of of, of this and to, for playing the game. I know it's nerve wracking for <laughs> for the right reasons or for the wrong reasons. I've just got one final question. Okay. Um, before we go um, and you finish your latte, <laughs> who who has been the lighthouse in your academic career? Oh, um, I would say there isn't one person. I know it's a bit a bit um, a bit of a, a dodge. No, I, I have um, a really good group of of uh, women academic friends. A close a close group who we're in touch all the time every day, keeping each other on track. Um, I won't name them necessarily unless you want me to. Yeah. Um, but we, we we keep each other right, we study each other, we give each other motivation, we help each other make decisions that, you know, whether it's about how to manage um, our, you know, our kind of relationships at work or our publications or make decisions about funding or whatever it is. And I would say that without them, I, I would probably be not where I am today. That's great. All those women. So we leave you in the, in the lighthouse, um, maybe dancing with your friends. Can you imagine if we can, we can, put, the, we can put the song again? Yeah, that would <laughs> be great. That would be great. And you can get them all in the lighthouse in the, in the gallery outside dancing to this music. <laughs> oh, I, like, I love that image. Should we finish like that? With yeah, you that's dancing a, that's with a... all your friends. Yeah, it is Friday. It is Friday. It's Friday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, this has been really, really good. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about advanced qualitative methods training and many other courses for postgraduate doctoral researchers, check out our website www.wrdtp.ac.uk. Thank you.